When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. How has the deregulation of the media affected the way we consume news? Has it contributed to the bubble effect where we all limited to only listening to people like ourselves? Or has it actually made it more democratic that we're now able to get information from all sides? Today I speak with Michelle Rosenfeld, professor of law at Cardozo Law School at the Yeshiva University in New York City. He's the author of many books, including Just Interpretations, Law Between Ethics and Politics, a casebook called Comparative Constitutionalism, Cases and Materials, The Identity of the Constitutional Subject, Law, Justice, Democracy and the Class of Cultures, and other books. His works have been translated into many languages, and he approaches this topic both from the American and a comparative perspective. Join me today on Think About It with Michelle Rosenfeld. Welcome to Professor Michelle Rosenfeld, uh, who I'm sitting with today in his office at Cardozo Law School at Yeshiva University. Uh, he's University Professor of Law and Comparative Democracy and the Justice Sidney L. Robbins Professor of Human Rights and the director of the program on global and comparative constitutional theory at Cardozo. You do many other things, and you've published an enormous amount of books on constitutional law, on comparative constitutional law, on the political theory that undergirds our legal practices. I'm going to put a couple links to your books onto the website so people can look these up. And first of all, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. My pleasure. So, Michelle, it's great to speak with you. I just finished reading a piece. I tried to read as much as I could from all of your books, and I read a recent piece where you talk about the sort of state of free speech, what you call the fracturing of free speech, and how that relates to contemporary democracy. And if I could ask you to start us out with your understanding of sort of what is the role of free speech in a democracy in general terms. I think there are two fundamental roles. One is there cannot be democracy without free speech to the extent that in order to have an informed electorate and to have a functioning democracy, communication is essential. All political ideas basically have to be able to make it into the public debate so that we can make choices that are reasonable and thought through. The other aspect of free speech, I think it's an essential attribute for every individual to thrive and to have a meaningful life, uh, should be able to express him or herself. 
So these are the two essential aspects of speech that I think every society should focus on. So the first one is really about th that politics don't work very well if not all opinions have been vetted or have been allowed to be expressed. If you can say what happened, for example, if we edit out an entire way of constructing society, what happens to government, what happens to democracy then if some things are not discussed, they just lack in the public debate? Once we get into free speech as a legal issue or a constitutional issue, there always have to be limitations. Scholars disagree as to where you draw the line in terms of political speech. And one of the question is, to what extent should extremist views be tolerated or should be repressed? And I'm of the mind that at some point, uh, when you're dealing with purely destructive propaganda, for instance, it does not really help the democratic process to keep propagating those, particularly if they're based on assertions that have no foundation in fact, and they're, they're defamatory of groups, etc. So it's a very difficult line to draw, but I do believe that at some point it ought to be drawn and not simply allow for anything to go in without any regulation. Well, any regulation will touch on the second point you made, that it's kind of inherent and essential to human flourishing. And sort of from John Stuart Mill to Simone Weil, people have said without free speech, people are not fully human, actually. You deprive them of something so essential to themselves. So I think when people hear necessary regulation, some speech that you said could be destructive to the public good, to the democracy itself, then people will say, well, that's my speech, and I, as a person, needed as much, not legally speaking, but philosophically speaking. So it's the health of my human being, my soul, is actually tied to the fact that I can express myself. I don't believe that it is really a problem to limit speech in order to thwart uh, flourishing, because all the rights we have are limited. We need a certain amount of property in order to exist. We have limitations on property rights. We need all kinds of things, and we cannot simply freely do whatever we want. Uh, I cannot at four in the morning, living in an apartment in New York, blast my music uh, so I wake up all my neighbors simply because that's the way I feel that that's the best way I could express myself. So I do think the limitations, and it's very delicate where we draw the lines on limitations, and we have to be suspicious of government intervention. I'm all aware of that. On the other hand, we just cannot allow, in fact, no society allows that but often the argument that is made either in the political realm or in the individual flourishing realm is that we cannot regulate that favors certain positions and thwarts others. There is no neutral way to, to regulate. And if I may give an example here, it's interesting that the United States is much more tolerant of extremist speech, what we call hate speech and even politically extremist speech than other societies. Yet, if you go through the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court of the United States in the first half of the 20th century after World War I, there is a clear regulation of communist or pro-communist speech. Uh, even cases saying the mere belonging in a communist party leads to a speech that can be punished because we will assume that you want to overthrow the government by force. Whereas there was at the same time a great tolerance of right-wing extremist speech, uh, whether it be racist or it be you know, type of fascist, Nazi type of speech. So the government has, well, let's say to step back, the law has always recognized that there is some regulation of speech. And what you're saying, it just changes over time, that the courts interpreted this need for regulation. I think as Americans, I think we do all think that 
we want as little regulation as possible, let's say, to minimize regulation. What you're pointing out that there is some, and it depends on usually what is important during that time of history. So communism was perceived as a genuine threat to American democracy, so it was regulated. That's correct. We've had always, there have been very few, although some of them on the Supreme Court who were absolutist. And then in order to be able to function, what they would do is define speech very narrowly. Or there are others who define speech very broadly and have expressive conduct included as speech, includes sleeping in the park as a form of protest. And so they have a very broad view of speech. But then they have some standard, standard that arose in the 20th century was the clear and present danger. And that is how a court, using the same standard, whether it's dealing with, let's say, very pernicious fascist propaganda or with communist propaganda, would say, we have a Cold War in the United States. We think the Soviet Union has agents everywhere, and we will link the speaker to a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. So in theory, everybody benefits from the same free speech rights, but in practice, the way the particular case is analyzed and handled seen in retrospect shows a bias against leftist uh, extremism and not against right-wing extremism. Well, you could say maybe the court acted quite wisely because the government was not overthrown by communist agitators. So in some ways one could say, well, as difficult as it was to regulate speech, they did the right thing because we ended up not being you know, taken over by Soviet infiltrators. I mean, there's many debates how to write this history. But what you presented is that the democracy has to, at some point, take care of the task of protecting itself. It wants to do that without limiting the rights of democratic citizens to speak. And if we can go back to that, that other part, which is not just human flourishing, but you've written about sort of John Stuart Mill's conception of that if political views are not expressed, it does something to the legitimacy of those who govern the people. What's the relationship between free speech and legitimacy or kind of political power in general? Well, I think democracy is based for the most part on the, if you wish, restraining the views of political minorities. And we work with the premise that majority rule, of course, we have a constitutional structure and some protections that go to everyone, but then we operate mainly by majority rule which means in very often that the significant uh, portion of the population is thwarted uh, by law and by policies in society. And what our explanation of that is, and it's never fully satisfactory, but at least uh, to some extent I think this is a satisfactory explanation, is everybody can debate, everybody can choose their representatives, everybody can weigh in on policy, and at the end we have to end with a vote. If views are suppressed, if the uh, process is thwarted. It doesn't only have to be speech. We have, for instance, now big debates in the United States about voting suppression. That also affects democracy. But arguably the idea that certain views have not been presented, even if these views are marginal and at the end they will not prevail, does have a, I think, a corrosive effect on the legitimacy of a majority rule. So the legitimacy depends that every opinion has kind of been vetted, debated, people could go back and forth on it, but then ultimately we all settle on, even though we may not agree with it, we felt, well, we were able to participate in that. It's sort of participatory democracy means 
your voice was heard at some point in this public sphere. The public sphere sort of at this point, let's say through the 19th century, sort of the first hundred years or so of America, the public sphere is largely regulated by public meetings, meeting halls, speeches, and the media, which is largely newspapers and the press. So that's how the public opinion is vetted. I guess the assumption is anybody can write a letter to the newspaper, hopes to get it printed, or can stand on the street corner and proclaim their views, right, or distribute leaflets. Then this changes in the 20th century, and you've talked a bit about how the media affects what the public is and what the public hears. It does, and there is obviously in what we're talking about is an ideal, and in every society there are biases either because newspapers are owned by some people, they're owned by some people with certain views, and so we don't have a level playing field in any society. We can have some ideal, some Rawlsian ideal or Habermasian ideal. Everybody's voice is counted the same. It's not true. So these are references to Sean Rawls, sort of the idea of a perfectly arranged society where no one knows their position in advance and sort of participates, or Habermas. There's a social contract, right, in Rawls, which is this hypothetical contract that we negotiate, but none of us has any power because we don't know our position in society. So we could be the poorest, most powerless, and so we try to find common norms because if we're going to be end up being the worst off in society, we want to guard against that. So this idea is a theoretical exit. The veil of ignorance allows us to account for power and where we are in society by pretending for a moment it doesn't. we don't know it. Right. So to suspend it and then say we end up in positions that we don't know yet, so we're probably not going to make a mistake to just privilege ourselves. Right. And then Habermas is the idea of the ideal speech situation where we all aim at universalizable norms and so forth. So when we talk about these issues, to some extent we have something like that in mind. And then every particular concrete social and political situation has its flaws. There are people who are advantaged. There are voices that are silenced and so forth. So we have to think of it in terms of what is the best we can do given the social constraints that we have. And in this respect, I think that we have experienced a great deal of change in the last 50 years. If you take society in the 1960s in the United States, it's not that it was unbiased, but they had basically a fairly unified source of information with some variety. The newspapers had different political tendencies, but there was one Walter Cronkite, there were three networks that provided the news. So Americans, generally speaking, had the same news outlets, and there was a common ground for discussion. That doesn't mean that the elites did not have advantages and that some uneducated people were not really but, into... But you have a lot of coverage. So a lot of Americans at this point are starting to own television sets. It's free, essentially, once you have a television set, you can access it. So what you're saying is a large part of the population gets a similar slice of the news. Right? right. It was a large part of the population. In addition, at the time, there were certain efforts made that there be a variety of views. One example of that, it was certainly imperfect, but it worked for a, a number of decades, was the Fairness Doctrine in Broadcasting, which the regulator, the Federal Communications Commission, said that if you're the owner of a television station and you're going to have a show on the Israeli-Palestinian problem, you couldn't get away with just having all Israelis or all Palestinians on your side. You had to give what is known as fair, balanced presentations. So you could lose the 
because the federal government had to renew your TV license, you could lose your license if they could show a systematic exclusion, let's say, of Palestinians mm -hmm. from your station. So we had this, now many people criticize it says government intervention in the press, so there was a lot of discussion, but the Supreme Court of the United States in a decision in 1969 uh, called the Red Line case said it was constitutional. It was not a violation of the journalistic rights of the broadcasters because broadcasting was a limited access, there was scarcity of airwaves, etc. Now, during the Reagan administration, this fairness doctrine was abolished. And then you have the proliferation of cable channels, so much more. And today now we have a second revolution, which is the social media and the breakdown of the broadcasting world in so, which everybody looks at a different channel. So before we get to this, so, okay. so what happens in the 80s, what happens with the fairness standard, and then what happens with the rise of cable television? So two things are, one is a government action, and one is kind of the marketplace inventing a new mode of distribution. Right. I think the two are related because you have a combination of libertarian ideology. Uh, you always had people that criticized the fairness doctrine from the right, saying that it's intolerable to have government tell a broadcaster that they have to do something. Uh, it's pretty good to criticize a standard that's supposed to be fair. It's pretty On good, behalf yeah. of what position? That no, no regulation would generally be better the right, no regulation is better. But there is, by the way, I think I can say with fair confidence that we could find scholarship in the First Amendment area in the United States, American scholars, from at least shortly after World War II, because I'm not uh, that familiar with what happened in the 19th century, till today, who take a position that any government intervention should be prevented because it necessarily will lead to censorship, partisanship, the wrong decision, and we're better off by allowing all ideas to flourish and to be discussed. Would you think that those scholars do make those exemptions for obscenity, for falsely yelling fire on a theater, for libel? So those kinds of exemptions that are frequently cited to say there's a couple things we all generally agree on. So, you know, low-value speech or, or direct obscenity for the sake of being obscene. Well, many of the same people, and I have read one of them, I won't mention his name, but he's a very famous constitutional scholar. He may have been on the podcast. You can mention he his name. We can podcast. reference him. I'm sure we no, can no, give him. He can be on the podcast. <laughs> but the point that he made was that pornography is not speech. We could be speaking about a novel. We're not necessarily speaking about an explicit pornographic image. And the reason why it's not speech is because somehow it circumvents your critical faculty. So it goes directly to provoke some kind of instinct or reflex. Therefore, it's not speech. So it's closer I, to action. I find that completely ridiculous. It's closer to action or something like that. It says it's right. it moves somehow, through speech act theory or so, something. And so in a certain sense, you are being led as a, I don't know what, a, a marionette. Somebody is, is pulling your strings. Pavlovian in a way. You're, right. you're just now, yes. To me, this seems absurd in itself. But if we want to use this metaphor, one can look at systematically, for instance, at Nazi propaganda. And one could speak in the same terms, that it was organized in such a way as to circumvent and, reason and to try and to the kind foster of, hatred. And we have this today, too. So and the legal trick is to say this type of expression, let's say pornography, is not speech, it's something else. And therefore, we're not running into a constitutional First Amendment problem by regulating it. Right. There's something 
you can cite other examples, the Citizens United case, which people bring up quite a lot, say donating money to a party is a form of speech and therefore protected. So they moved something into the category of speech rather than in your previous example, moving something out of the category of speech to have it protected more. So what we're seeing is that speech is kind of, you can put things into it or you can kick things out of it if you're a good, you know, constitutionally minded lawyer. Right, which I use as proof of my point that whatever the rhetoric, there's always regulation of speech. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, what is very interesting about Citizens United and many other cases now is the correlation between speech and property has been used by right-wing interests and ultimately by, in some cases, by Supreme Court majorities in order to, in effect, boost certain very uh, important uh, financially well-heeled interests and defeat the people who are on the other side. And this has been done with elections by saying, and again, I don't know if it favors Democrats or Republicans because one can accuse the billionaires on the right and the billionaires on the left. So it's not just the black and white that it helps the Republicans and hurts the Democrats, but it helps those who have an awful lot of money who play a disproportionate role in American democracy. And then you have, for instance, the anti-union part of this, which is to have, it started a long time ago by saying that where there is a union, an employee who doesn't like the political program and project and advocacy of the union can at least have that portion of his dues taken away and returned to him and not given to the union. And now we are at the point in the terms of public employee unions that they can basically completely opt out because they can have the same opinion about the collective bargaining aspect of the union, which is a, until now was viewed as a purely economic situation. Now, what is amazing about this is that an employee of a corporation is working for a corporation that is absolutely free in terms of what it does politically, what charities it chooses to give to, and which political candidates it gives to, and the employee has absolutely no say in that. But if you're part of a union, and usually corporations and unions are at opposite ends of uh, several very important industrial tensions, battles, and so forth. That's a really interesting point. So what the court said is by compelling someone to contribute fees to a union that makes them political statement, it's the compulsion of speech that the government should not permit. Your colleague Kate Shaw, she actually read Elena Kagan's dissent in this Janus decision, which came down this summer to me on the podcast, and also remarked, what is at stake right now in our culture where free speech has become this lens through which to view many of these things? And to go back briefly, so under Reagan, you have cable, which gets rid of the monopoly of a few stations or a few monopolies of a few television stations. And now then what we have after that is the invention of social media, where two things happen, where you have much more access to much more news all the time. And secondly, you can participate. You can actually jump into the conversation. You couldn't do that. You could not get an op-ed placed in a major newspaper or publish a letter. They published eight letters a day at most. Now, you want to say something, you can go on Twitter and you can say something. You and you speak back directly to the president or to anybody else. So you've written about, you would think that's a good thing. That's a democratization of speech. Isn't that positive that now with social media, finally the people can really speak? 
Well, ideally, you would have a situation whereby you would have centralized forms of speech where it's not important that every person appears, but where any respectable view, and by non-respectable view, I would really be uh, something completely nonsense, but any political view, any idea about society, religion, way of life, would, would be discussed but an individual would not have a right of access, so that we would have some kind of common discussion. And then all the rest, everybody could use Twitter, Facebook, whatever social media exists to weigh in, and then who reads, what reads, or how it goes would be random. The problem now is that we have two things that have happened. One is decentralization. Now, cable allowed that, but my here I'm just using my personal recollection as a citizen. But my recollection at the beginning of the cable age, there wasn't so much, if you want, a balkanization of news. Cable channels had uh, odd programming or would have entertainment. They had also public access channels, so people could rent uh, and, and they have sometimes some very weird things about basket weaving or wh whatever the people who rented the hour and they were forced to show it freely. But most people still got their news from the main sources of news, which were networks. And there were, by that time, four or five, not three as in the 1960s, but it was still a continuum in this sense. This all changed when we went to the 24-hour cable outlets, and where, in effect, what happened is that people became distributed, and each of us can follow whichever one of them is closer to our political beliefs. So in effect there's no communication. So what happens when you put all the social media together and all the fact that we have now this completely spread out, balkanized news world is that we no longer have common facts, we no longer can really d discuss many things together and we become more and more uh, separated into groups which now is reflected in our national politics, what they call tribalization I think. You can see some links to all this. Now the further I think real danger, and uh, it's been proven very dramatically in very recent time, of the social media is there's no longer any guarantee of control over facts. Now, we knew for at least 30, 40 years that the National Enquirer was not to be believed, and they had sensational uh, stories that were absolutely non-believable, and I could look at in a supermarket at the headlines of the National Enquirer, and I just walked by. When I had a similar headline in the New York Times, at least I wouldn't necessarily accept it 100%, but at least I would take it seriously. It would make me think. But it's very difficult in the age of Twitter and Facebook, etc. And we've seen this now with the revelations about what the Russians have done in the 2016 election to know who it is, what are they saying, what are the facts, and who is behind it. And so it becomes very difficult to have a common dialogue and to have points of reference that are useful when you start losing confidence in communications generally. Because you've lost, in some ways, the gatekeeping function. And the right. debate about social media is interesting that people are kind of calling on these big companies and these big platforms to say, you should have a gatekeeping function. Actually, it was interesting to me that there are a lot of conservative voices saying, we're not being treated fairly, there's too much news against us. The other people are saying what you're saying, there's too many automated accounts, bots, 
etc. that just push information and news in certain directions. So do we want to acknowledge what you said earlier, that speech is inevitably and in all circumstances regulated up to a point? We want to maximize it, but we don't want to completely deregulate it. So then it fractures in these two different ways. There's so much speech suddenly, and it's balkanized, as you say. It breaks down into certain kind of subgroups. How do we get back to a place where, I mean, there's a couple of questions now in this. There's a question of how can you call on the government to regulate Twitter or Facebook? To me, that always seems really counterintuitive when I hear people who espouse a very strong absolutist position on the one hand on free speech, but then they say Twitter should be regulated. Facebook should be regulated. There should be somebody who actually vets it and makes sure that we have a fairness doctorate again. One area where I have no expertise in, I would even say I'm probably below average in my understanding, is the actual mechanics of social media and how does one control it. So I don't, you know, this is something that I wouldn't be able to design. But the broad idea is this, that we need to, even if the regulation is minimal, we need at least to be able to know who is saying what and what is real and what is not real. Now, of course, this can, any form of regulation can be misused for political reasons, but if the rules are stringent and if there is a review mechanism, the idea that it's very different when you have, let's say, Russian people, let's say, spewing a lot of racist rhetoric because they want to influence an American election, that if I know that David Duke has put a racist comment on the news, I think that I would be able to discount, and many people would be able to, who do not follow David Duke, that some people say he's wonderful and I believe what he says, but I would be able to discount that and would not feel the same way, would not feel as threatened, etc., etc., if I knew who it was. So in, even in this sense, it's very important who, even when we talk about hate speech, it's very important to know who is saying it. There was an incident during the Reagan administration, which was not even hate speech, but it shows how sensitive the issue is. There was a, he was a general with a position in the Reagan administration who made a general statement that the Jews controlled the banks in the United States, which at the time at least was not true at all. And of course there was an outcry that that's a, it's behind the scenes, that's an anti-Semitic statement. A few days later, the general resigned. Now, if this had been said by somebody who is known to be a fringe character with a history of racism and anti-Semitism, people had said, okay, we have free speech, but nobody believes the head of the neo-Nazi party in the United States. So there is an aspect of all this that is very threatening because we don't know who it is. And I guess the way the Russians presented it is that they're more racist in the United States than you think. They're more people on the left in the United States than you think. Uh, so somehow it makes it easier for you to become paranoid if this is orchestrated. That's a very small point, but if we start thinking systematically on how these things can be misused and how they destroy our possible relationship to facts, and you made a very important point, we may not like the editorial board of the New York Times, but at least it plays a role. And so does it play the role with the Wall Street Journal, which is on the right. Now, we should criticize it. We should point out that they have biases, et cetera, et cetera. But there is some filtering mechanism. And even if you disagree politically with a serious journal, like I personally disagree with the Wall Street Journal's editorial position, I don't assume that the Wall Street Journal is just going to create facts out of nowhere and be totally 
irresponsible. But for instance, that uh, very tragic set of communications that uh, were saying that uh, Hillary Clinton was running a, what was it, a sex abuse of children uh, ring, which led, I think, to a murder. Uh, these kinds of things obviously have to be stopped. Well, what you're saying is before this complete deregulation that people can be anonymous, can all participate in discourse, allows for people or makes people think maybe there is a real threat here. Maybe this is real. If someone says it's kind of like, you know, the radio program in the 1930s where they're warning of an attack from alien invaders. And if there's no one to counter that story and you keep on finding this story all over the Internet, you may start believing it. Right. So there's an in some way, this social media aspect allows people to induce panic or fear. You said before that it was easier to say, well, there's racism, there's anti-Semitism, isn't a real threat in America. I can put up with this. Lee Bollinger wrote this book on the tolerant society in the late 70s. I think he talked about the Skokie case. And he says in that book, actually, anti-Semitism doesn't have a real chance of taking root in America. He doesn't phrase it like that. He said, most people do not believe that anti-Semitism is a real genuine threat. He says it's different about racism. He doesn't answer his own question there. So where we are now is you suddenly have people or bots, anonymous people saying all sorts of things. You may start thinking this is a lot of people in the country saying it, many more than maybe are really there because they're generated by algorithms. There's another shift that the moral compass used to be provided, for example, by our president, who would actually step in. And every president from Jimmy Carter until Obama had always said, Nazi ideology, these kinds of views are antithetical to American values. So Trump was the, is the first president who actually doesn't step in in these moments and say, I leave it to the court to regulate speech, not my business. We shouldn't regulate it at all. Free speech is really valuable. However, I strongly oppose these views. So what do you think happens when this is removed, this kind of moral function? And I think this is a lot of what we're living through right now that we don't quite know where this country is oriented in what way. Well, first of all, if I may have a comment on Bollinger, because I wrote a long book review on, yes. on Bollinger. So this is the Tolerant Society, Lee Bollinger's right, right. book. And I had a debate with him yes. and at the time. And I think that his absolutist view I didn't share. But the point he made on anti-Semitism was true in 1978. And I have written something on this that he wouldn't agree with it in terms of where I end up, but that is consistent with this observation as of 1978. And that is that in the United States, there was no threat. There was anti-Semitism, but there was no threat by a neo-Nazi group. They represented 50 people, and nobody followed them. So in a sense, the argument, let them talk, because it shows how weak and uninteresting they are to the general population, was a good policy. At the same time, and this is the deeper point I've made about hate speech, is that the United States keeps focusing, and many scholars focus, one saying that we never had a danger of Nazism, so we understand why Germany criminalizes certain forms of speech that we don't. But what these people fail to admit, because it's painful from an American national standpoint, is that our equivalent, I'm not saying it's all exactly equivalent, but the relatively equivalent uh, situation is racism, slavery, violence towards African Americans. So why not adopt the, the German position vis-a-vis -vis the very violent racist path of the United States? So that, that point I made. I want to stay with this point for a moment because okay. it's such an important point and what you just said is, I think, worth stressing. 
you're not creating an equivalence. They are different historical events. Yes. They are distinct. One is horrific on a scale that's not comparable to other ones. The other one is also horrific. Yes. So what we're not saying is there's equivalences. There's a Holocaust here. There's slavery or the genocide of Native Americans. It's not an equivalence. It's actually saying different histories could generate similar responses, not because one country did this, we must do this. But I think this is worth stressing because people... And I've talked to a couple of your colleagues in the field about this. It's not a matter of an equivalence, but it's a matter of using this argument to say we never had a problem. Therefore, we are doing really well with our free speech regulation. These other countries, and they always include Canada, strangely enough, mm -hmm. regulate hate speech because they fear something, which we don't need to fear in America. So I think it's important to say there's no equivalence here, but that different events could generate similar okay. outcomes. I fully agree with you, there's no equivalence with the, with the Holocaust, but there are equivalences in uh, various countries in terms of having some dark Absolutely. historical problems that are not solved fully, and America's race problem is a major issue. And there was horrific violence, there were lynchings and beatings and killings and torture and all kinds of things, so we're not talking about a, a minor event. And racist rhetoric has been a part of this, and white supremacist rhetoric has been a part of this, and therefore the idea that this hate speech is better solved through, let's discuss it, is not always convincing. That, that was my point. And I think that we go to other countries, they have other problems. And so the Holocaust is the most dramatic, and also it happened yeah. all at once in a very short period, whereas the American experience has been much longer more diffuse, it does not add up to the same thing, but it's still a very serious culpability of the majority vis-a-vis an important part of the population, and it's not been fully resolved as of today either. So and, I think it's instructive to point that out. And to go back to your sort of your conversation with Bollinger, so in 1978, say anti-Semitism is really not a, a, let's say, clear and present danger for most Americans. It's not really going to be implemented. What is the mood in the country now? I think people are sort of taking this free speech issue as a lens through which to view their culture at large and saying, actually, I think there's systemic racist violence. There's Black Lives Matter, which has demonstrated that black people in this country are disproportionately targeted by police, that there's this, a way of incarceration and policing that's just so unfair and actually threatens the lives and livelihoods of black Americans. And we have a president who doesn't speak out against this, but actually seems to signal that he's in support of this. So when Ballinger made the statement in 1978, Jimmy Carter said the same thing. He said, I abhor these people. These are horrible people, but they are a tiny minority and we're better than this. I think that this goes back to your other point and links the two conversations together. Yes, there was a moral leadership of people, I mean, it started way before, but I would start with Franklin Roosevelt, and I would even include, although he was flawed in many ways and, and is not a great example, Richard Nixon, although he was divisive in a political sense, he never did what Trump did. Now, of course, many people will tell you that, particularly on the Republican side, the use of the race card has been something that they did but not in the way that Trump is doing it. I mean, Bush, George Herbert, Walker Bush, the father in his campaign, the Willie Horton, which was for those who are too young to remember that, was trying to attack his Democratic opponent because he had a furlough policy for prisoners and a, a particular black prisoner who was furloughed then went and raped and killed someone. 
But the idea that the image of that, one could have made that, but why not choose a white a person who, I am sure of all the people that were in the system in Massachusetts, there may have been a white person who did something wrong. But the idea to put the poster boy of, the, of what's wrong with America and the Democrats is this black person does inject racism into a campaign. But on the other hand, if you heard his speeches and if you heard his positions, he never embraced explicitly this kind of ideology. And Bush Sr., President Bush, also spoke out, which was very unusual for a sitting president, against David Duke running for the Senate in Louisiana and said, this person does not pass muster to be part of American politics, Right. which was very unusual. So in some ways, as you're saying, he used kind of a dog whistle policy. Willie Horton is kind of signaling to his voters, I'm really against you know, people who were sort of too lenient on crime as one hand, but also making an example of an African-American. At the same time, he spoke out against David Duke. So there was a kind of direction or the way the country is supposed to think through moral leadership. Right. And I think this is why I would include anybody from Roosevelt to Barack Obama, whatever the party. There was at a certain level, there are a lot of contradictions and inconsistencies in every president's life. At a certain level, they did maintain this idea of the American compass, as distorted as it may have been, that America has a responsibility for democracy, freedom, human rights, and the president has to speak out. The ways in which Donald Trump has failed this are spectacular. Not only is it Charlottesville, but even what's happening now with Saudi Arabia. His argument is basically, if I have a commercial interest, I don't care how extreme or inhuman it is to murder somebody in a consulate and then chop off their bones. I don't care about this because I want to sell them arms. Many presidents may have thought that way, but they never expressed it that way. So there's a, it seems to be a complete contempt for the most minimal morality, which a president of the United States was supposed to, at least in public, display. So I agree with you. Now, of course, we cannot limit, the, in this sense, the free speech of the president. We can't, I actually think the Charlottesville example is quite interesting, and I've really thought about this quite a bit, that I thought what Trump was doing was many, many things. And one of the things was in a clumsy way to actually echo what a lot of people say, to say, well, there's positions on all sides, and we should hear everybody out, and everybody has a right to speak. He managed to also kind of lend support to these people instead of just saying they have a right to speak, but I detest, you know, whatever they say, this kind of quote usually attributed probably incorrectly to Voltaire. But I thought he was doing something that is actually quite pervasive, that people say, well, you know, we should listen to the Nazis. We should listen to the Klan. You know, they have a position. They're allowed to march and they're allowed to promote their views. Once he didn't do that, it puts everybody else in a strange position because now if you're very vocally defending the rights as the ACLU has done, and I've interviewed a couple of people in the ACLU of neo-Nazis in the Klan, it sounds like maybe you are kind of endorsing what they say rather than just protecting a right that everybody enjoys. Well, I think there's a difference between allowing them a right to speak, which from the American jurisprudence point of view they are, and saying they're good people on one side. One can say that in the United States there are no limits and you can have any thug and any person who has a racial supremacy and even let's kill all the people who are not within our racial superior thing. Let America get rid of all non-whites. You can say that in the United States as long as you're not immediately inciting to violence. 
but it's very different when a president then says views on this side and views of those who preach pluralism and tolerance are views. We should put them in the same plane. There was another thing about Charlottesville that was particularly disturbing and that shows that Trump, in fact, doesn't believe in the way you put it, put it very eloquently in best possible interpretation. Even neo-Nazis and Klan people have views. And the truth is they have views and they respond to certain problems and sometimes they may have insights or they may insist on a point that we should listen. I'm not saying that in all respect, for instance, the anti-immigration rhetoric, it may be that we should think more thoroughly how we do absorb immigrants, not absorb immigrants, what are our obligations to the unemployed people here. I mean, these issues are issues that are worth discussing. Once you put it in terms of purely racist idea about people with brown skin should stay out of the United States, obviously you've crossed the line. But the thing that was, I think, very extraordinary about Charlottesville is that, first of all, the people marching had guns and were threatening. So even by the most liberal free speech view, they were physically threatening the people around them. Second of all, one of them took a car and killed someone and injured many of them. And Trump did not condemn that violence as he condemned without knowing whenever there was something that seemed to be an Islamic terrorist attack, whether it was or wasn't, immediately he would condemn and try to get the sympathy for the rest of the world and the hatred directed to whoever he thought the perpetrator was. I remember him commenting, I think, on an incident in London before the police in London knew it was a terrorist. So when you compare that, to his what seems to be soft spot for neo-Nazis and white supremacists, saying there's some good people on their side. I mean, the, the images were rather striking of what happened in Charlottesville, of these people armed to the, their teeth and then making all these slogans. And that was all we saw. And the next day we learned about this young woman who was by no means a violent protester. She seemed to just take the position of free speech and anti-fascism. Right, she actually, Heather Hare was actually sort of exercising her right of free speech. And I had a, several guests on the podcast from Charlottesville who've said to me quite explicitly, they say, you're framing this in the wrong way if you think about it as a free speech issue. It's a violence issue. They said it's actually the wrong approach. If you go down that road, you're not going to win. These people did not come to speak. They came to hurt people. So it's kind of interesting. I've really been corrected in a way to say this is not the right lens or the right angle. There's obviously a range of opinions but I think what has happened in the country is that the free speech label has been challenged, that people used to sort of say, I'm ultimately absolutely in favor of free speech, and I know what you mean when you say free speech, and I know what I mean by free speech. What has happened now, because of things like Charlottesville and Trump's response, that people say free speech, but they seem to mean very different things, or they suddenly seem to be suspicious and say, what are you saying when you say this word free speech? Because are you really defending violence? Which the court has never accepted at all. But that's what it suddenly looked like. Well, it is because there is the new polarization, I think. And just like free speech is manipulated in a less violent, but nonetheless a politically charged context, when you're talking about Citizens United, do we want our elections to be corrupt and to be dominated by money and now in increasingly is one of the court's big points is, but it's all transparent. You'll know it's Mr. So-and-so giving the money. And now we find out in certain ways the money can be anonymous. So there's no protection, just money penetrating our elections. So 
Of course, free speech means different things. The people who oppose Citizens United, including the justices on the court to the citizens who are very upset about it, say to it, it's a charade. You are using speech, in fact, to allow money to corrupt our politics. So that's a totally different view. And now with Charlottesville, you have another incident where you have violence parading a speech. It is a demonstration. They did look frightening, and they did have guns. So it, it crosses this line. Because the idea of free speech in America is that we shout at each other and disagree and may say things that are very offensive, but it's speech. It invites you to answer. I wouldn't have said anything, frankly. I've, I've seen the pictures. Had I been standing there with these people with shotguns, making anti-Semitic remarks, I would not, as a Jew, have gone and said, I dispute this because I would have been frightened for my life. So I think that at this point, it's not speech, really. It's not speech. It's actually interesting you're saying that because you're saying based on your knowledge of this society, if you see someone with a gun, with anti-Semitic slogans, armed to the teeth, you know what is about to happen. In a group. It's not even one. In a group. You know what's going to happen. And in some ways to say, well, you have to wait it out and see whether they are really going to hurt somebody, and then you can maybe regulate this. A lot of people say that is maybe a step too, especially when it touches on universities or public institutions, that's maybe a step too far to wait until that, because we have a history of this kind of violence. So while Mr. Ballinger said anti-Semitism won't maybe overthrow the country's government, there is a threat. And in some ways, once you can assess that to say, based on the history of what these people have done before, not that they're outlawed right away, but to say to be a little bit more cautious to not just under the rubric of speech, let people do anything they want. And I still think that the problem today may change in, in a while is not so much anti-Semitism. I mean, it's not good, and I'm not saying there's no increase, there are increased incidents in anti-Semitism and sometimes violence. I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying that what is really scary about Charlottesville for the United States, and you mentioned the Black Lives Matter too, is that the racial situation has become exacerbated. Now, whether there's a whole debate as to whether Trump is an anti-Semite or not an anti-Semite, I don't think he's an anti-Semite in the classical term of this. I think that he uses whatever he can if it's politically advantageous. Like, uh, he had an interview before the 2016 election, which I remember seeing him saying he doesn't have any idea who David Duke is, and then they produce footage that a few years later he condemned David Duke. So why is he not remembering David Duke? Because part of his supporters are people who approve of David Duke. So Trump is very malleable, but he's had a very long history, from what I can read and tell, of racial prejudice. And there are many, many instances of racial prejudice. He doesn't have a history of, per se, anti-Semitism. And I don't think that in today's America, if I would say what is the group that is most threatened by all this, I would say it's African-Americans, not Jews. Right. And this is, I think, where this issue of free speech and equality touches on race in America and sort of the acknowledgement of America's original sin, as one of your colleagues raised it, sort of whether this is under the speech rubric, actually, what's been a bit surprising for me to think that actually under free speech, we don't have a more robust debate of racism, of the legacy of the kind of how we can improve our country under the free speech mantle. We have a lot of debates how we must absolutely defend neo-Nazis and the Klan. And I've heard a couple of people from the ACLU on the podcast, and they have struggled now with, I think, not really communicated to the public very well that their position is not just to defend neo-Nazis, but somehow that gets most of the press 
they also committed to equality in other projects that maybe people don't notice that. So there's a, a distortion of the debate around free speech itself. I will remark because it's historically interesting, and I had a long discussion with Norman Dorsen, who at the time was, I think, president of the ACLU, about the Skokie situation. And the Skokie situation also generated a debate in the ACLU. And what was interesting is that on both sides of the pro-ACLU that the neo-Nazis needed to be defended as anybody else were Jewish lawyers. Arian Nair was one of the principal spokespeople in favor of tolerance, including the neo-Nazis. And on the other side, there were Jewish people saying, wait a second, you have Holocaust survivors in Skokie, Illinois. What is the ACLU doing defending these neo-Nazis who want to march in a Nazi uniform with swastika and, and have slogans about the we should finish off the, the Jews, etc., like that. So even then, the debate did take place, and there were some very angry, I've read letters to newspapers, etc., by Jewish people saying, how can the ACLU really say they represent uh, our highest values in free speech? And yet, from the ACLU's point of view, there was absolutely no doubt that it was the right thing to defend the neo-Nazis. Now, I can see this, with a 1978 lens, but I don't, I'm not sure that Charlottesville, if I were in the ACLU, if the Charlottesville people, demonstrators, are in the same category. I don't think the neo-Nazis, at the end, they didn't even march in Skokie, they marched in Grand Park in Chicago, and apparently I've been in Grand Park and it's sort of lost where they marched in the there may have been 30 people, of which 20 were newspaper people. So it was really a non-event, an anticlimactic event. But I wonder now with the, first of all, I don't remember the neo-Nazis march being televised. It may have been, but I, it was so insignificant I don't remember it. Whereas looking at Charlottesville, I mean, the images of Charlottesville are gripping, and I still have them very vividly in my mind. So in this sense, I think it's very different. And the ACLU should have thought about because there's ways in which you can be a free speech absolutist and say, but they've crossed the line because they had these weapons. And once you threaten it's, with I, weapons, it's not the same I, thing as uh, making an abstract speech about how good it would be if the world is deprived of certain races or groups. It's actually a really deep question in some ways. I'll include a couple of references. There's a couple of good documentaries on the Skokie case, actually, with Ari Nair and Norman Dorson, blessed be his memory, who's kind of be really an advocate of this position, this absolutist position. And in Charlottesville, the court documents are quite interesting because one of the organizers of the march says under oath there are not going to be no weapons, there's going to be no violence. And the ACLU references that and says, well, he swore there won't be violence. And people have looked at the ACLU and said, what if he doesn't play by the rules? What if he lied? What if he wasn't honest? What if he pretended? And they said, well, we can't accept that because we play by the rules. So in some ways, it's actually deeper to what's going on in our country. If someone doesn't play by the rules and says, oh, no, they won't bring weapons, and I couldn't control that. They brought weapons. I didn't know that. And feigns ignorance when other people said they were meeting in the parking lot of Walmart or Target and actually were organizing and were armed. So the ACLU sort of has to have the high ground here, but people are saying... Don't be duped into working with people who don't take the high ground. And this, I think, is a really big challenge right now in our country, where you have to assume the best, kind of. You assume they're going to play by the rules, they're not going to lie under oath, they're not going to deceive you. And they are actually laughing all the way to their rallies and saying, look, we have the ACLU on our side, and we have the president on our side. 
And I think this is a difference that the second part you mentioned, Skokie, people couldn't see it. Charlottesville was all over the world live on the news because people had cameras and can broadcast that. So that changes something about the perception. Is it the right perception? Is it a real threat? I think there are enough people in this country who think it's a real threat. Well, those images were threatening and the descriptions I saw in the press is, uh, to me what, what crosses the line is the people carrying actual weapons. And because I think it's a very different situation. The whole free speech ideology is that the best thing to do, America, I should say, American free speech ideology, the best way to counter speech is with speech. And so you can have people arguing, you can have people yelling at each other, but as long as it remains within this general context, one may criticize, say, you're naive, there's no equality of power, and some ideas are very pernicious. But on the other hand, there is at least at some level, some confidence that we remain within the realm of expression. Once we could pull our gun and do away with the person whose views we don't agree with, it's not a free speech situation. And I think that it's interesting that the ACLU response that you just mentioned is naive, but we have now in politics increasingly, not only about neo-Nazis, but if you look at the Kavanaugh dispute where the Democrats were vilified as having uh, it dishonestly fabricated that, and then many Democrats believe that the, the Republicans have done things that are beyond the rules that are completely dishonest. Did Trump collaborate in compromising the election? We, there's no end to, to this now. And I think that the trust and the somehow there is an erosion of confidence in institutions is much more dramatically dangerous than just the Charlottesville case, although I'm not trying to minimize that. It was only a ACLU naivete about one neo-Nazi march that's very different than we seem to be heading. And you said, uh, you asked before, what about Trump and his lack of taking a moral position? He said, it was amazing that he just said two days ago when he was speaking about the Kavanaugh nomination and he was asked by CBS, well, didn't you feel bad that you were mocking that woman? And he said, we won, so I don't discuss it anymore. So the whole point is winning. And the whole point is winning regardless of the rules. And it used to be at least an American mirage or ideal or something that they said, but they didn't always do. But at least they said, okay, we play by the rules. We have to be fair. Yes, I won. I played very hard, but uh, I played by the rules. There was a referee. The court will referee me. The Congress will referee me. Our elections are uh, trustworthy. And now all this seems to be threatened from all sides. Right. I think this is the big challenge that we don't have, that actually how much we depended on this kind of moral compass. I think that's what's also revealing about the Trump presidency, that you would think, who cares what the president says? They say things always just to be politically expedient, or they just say these bromides to make people feel good. But it actually meant a lot. And when people in power say, we just have power and we hold on to raw power and we don't care what the fact is or how we got here, or what we used as a method to get here, that influences other people's behavior as well. And Trump started this during the election when he said before he knew he won that uh, if he doesn't win, he won't recognize the result, uh, which is to my mind the first time this has happened in my lifetime. One thing about American elections, which was amazing, and to me the most amazing was the gore the Bush-Gore situation where there was tremendous, there was even in some places on the verge of violence, 
between groups while this was undecided. But once it was decided, Al Gore went and conceded when he must have known that in fact he won, because according to at least the Miami Herald that did the recounting later, under one formula he won, under another formula he didn't, but at least he had a good argument that he won the election and nonetheless he was deprived of that. But once institutionally it became official, because the Supreme Court voted one way, even though the Republican justices voted one way and the democratically appointed vote the other way, Al Gore made a speech and in fact said it's over, we should unify. and. It, so you had all this going on, even this was the worst case because Carter lost to Reagan. It was very difficult for him to say he won. He lost the landslide. But Gore was perhaps the most harmed person in the sense that the process did not go as fairly as it should have gone. Nonetheless, everybody conceded and put the country and democracy above their own interests. And Trump was the first one, even before the election, who said no, he, wouldn't, he would not go along with it. So he completely changed the landscape. And of course, people are now, I mean, the Democrats are now debating. Some people want to start behaving like Trump because they say we can just be beaten up each time. Other people are not sure, but we are, this is a very bad turn for the country's democracy, I think. Right, this, this debate, the last debate you just referenced, which was that people are saying, should we fight fire with fire? But a, fight him on his own turf, on his ground, and then and you can see the Wall Street Journal is enraged that Democrats are proposing to challenge any of the rules or not behave with decorum and civility. And they say, yeah, Trump's a little rough sometimes, but it's outrageous that senators would suggest to actually fight him and not respect the office. So it's an interesting debate because it sort of says, from which position is it being argued? Is there any kind of silver lining, anything you can say that actually our listeners can say, well, no, they what's they the takeaway of this? I think that this shows the deterioration of the public debate. Both sides accused the other of mob rule. There's no question that Trump had aspects of mob rule when in his campaign he basically incited people to what amounts to, it was not direct, but it was indirect violence, and then says, don't worry about it, I'll send you my lawyers to take care of you. This is the type of what I would call mob rule. And now he has used this formula to attack Democrats. So the Democrats voting against Kavanaugh and bringing out these allegations against him is mob rule. Frankly, it's not mob rule. You could say it's unfair politics if in fact they fabricated all this. They went to these women. Uh, I mean, the story is Democratic lawyers found these women. I don't know if they paid them. They egged them on and say, go against Kavanaugh. And they went, and this was the last minute to stop the thing. One can say it's terribly unfair, it subverts the process, it's not politically acceptable, but mob rule. I mean, it just mm. seems to me that that's a very far stretch. Yet, this is the new rhetoric. Is there a way to get out of this? This kind of one-upmanship that keeps on going lower and lower, it seems? Unfortunately, it is, keeps escalating, and I think the polarization increases. And I don't know how you break, I mean, it, it'll require either an incredible crisis and tragedy of a national scale, or an absolutely extraordinary leader who will be able to lift us above this. Because I'm just thinking, suppose the Democrats take over the Senate, which is very unlikely, but suppose they take over the Senate. Given what the Republicans said at the end of the Obama administration, if I were one of the senators, I would say, no more confirmations to the Supreme Court. Okay, Obama had one year, he had two years, but we still have the votes. 
okay, so this escalates. Now, from the other hand, they say, okay, we want to be nice guys, and let's say Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Breyer retire, then you're giving him two more extreme right-wing justices. When they didn't allow Merrick Garland to even have a hearing, so it's, it would be very difficult, even I think from in terms of re-election, it would be very dif difficult for a Democratic senator, let's say, to take the position, no, I want to be above the fray, then the people who elected him will be very upset. So the natural reaction would be, we'll play with you the same way we played with us, but then that'll escalate. On the so I don't know where this ends. It's really very disheartening. Very difficult, yes. Very difficult and I'm not sure if we can hold out our hope for a kind of messianic figure to save us. <laughs> not no, I, that I don't think. That. I mean, there may be a tragedy right. that requires unification and the right figure saying, in these circumstances, whatever it is, we're threatened with a climate disaster and we could have famine. And, and I think we are already threatened. We are, by we that. are, but uh, we're not <laughs> apparently within the next 10 years. Right. So I heard Bill Clinton once say, long after he was in office, he visited and he said he always hoped for a kind of alien attack that wasn't so threatening to be really going to endanger the planet, but be very scary. So then all people would unite behind. So we may be hoping a measured kind of threat. Right, some <laughs> vaccination of a measured, measured threat. threat. Yes. Okay, thank you so much, Professor Rosenfeld. This has been really illuminating. And I'd hope to have you back on the podcast at some point, And we'll thank continue you. this conversation.